Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. I'm Debbie, and I'm an alcoholic. And it's really, really nice to be here. Thank you, Pixie, for the invitation. Mark has been an incredible uh, host to me this afternoon since I got here. And seeing people from my old home group, the Bellflower Big Book Group. Yeah, huh, Judy? Yeah, and Kathy's here, and people from around the country I've met. And it's just really, really fun to be here. Thank you, thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's customary in my part of the state, I'm in Concord, California, east of uh, the San Francisco area, to ask if there's anybody in their first 30 days of sobriety. You just get a show of hands. How many people are in the first 30 days? Okay, we've got a few. I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous and a way of life. Because to me, I used to think it was just about putting the plug in the jug and sitting in some meetings, and it was called AA. That you threw a bunch of stuff in there, you threw a bunch of outside issues, and you threw a bunch of outside activities, and you stirred up that pot, and you called it Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't know any different until I finally got serious about recovery. Because I used, I didn't get the first legacies called recovery, it's not called sobriety. And when I realized that, my whole world began to shift in a whole different thing altogether. And we talk in step one in the 12 and 12 about hitting bottom. And it paraphrasing says, you know, why all this insistence on hitting bottom? And it says, well, because if you don't, you're not going to be willing to do the remaining 11 steps. And I thought, you're right. I'm not, you know. I'm not willing to do anything here. And I knew that um, in the 10 months that I had visited Alcoholics Anonymous before I got sober, I would hear you talk about your bottoms. And I would find all the differences between me and you. And I didn't do that, and I didn't go there, and I didn't have that experience, and found all those differences. And finally the day came after a second, my second relapse that, uh, that I hit my bottom. And I've heard many stories over the years. And bottom, I've never really heard to be an outside event. It's an inside job. It was that look on someone's face, a look in the mirror, a look in the reflection in the, in a window. And for me, it was just, I, after that second relapse, which was enough to get me out of reality, but not enough to go into a blackout by any means, the shift happened to me that I don't want to, this, this has no more draw for me. I don't want to live like this anymore. And if this is what living's going to look like, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. And the shift happened from up here, from my head to that, what we call that two foot drop. And for the first time I knew that line in chapter three happened that I admitted to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic. And that's what happened at that moment. And it wasn't any big shakes or big deal. It was really kind of embarrassingly lame, my last relapse, which I'll tell you in a minute. But it 
it was going to be my moment that ha- that it happened. And I can tell you, this is what I look for with people that I personally know who are repeat relapsers, is I look for the shift. I look for what happened to me, which was up here, it had been yakety yak, I know, I know, I know. I don't know anything, but I'm giving you the I know. It's really the I've heard, it's not the I know, okay? And when they tell me the I know, what that really is in code for me is back off. They're all done listening, whether I'm just sharing my experience or whatever. But when they're done listening, they're also done learning, done growing, and they're back doing it their way. And so the shift for me was I went from the yakety yak to that when the two-foot drop happened, my whole vocabulary changed to be things like, oh, okay, yes, I'll be there, I'll go there, I'll do that. I started, as my friend Larry T. talks about, training my feet instead of giving life lip service, of which I had no experience to give. And so that particular night, that's what happened to me. And it was a Saturday, and um, it was that moment where I was, I was as flatlined emotionally and spiritually as I probably have ever been, it was at absolutely zero for me. And I was empty of self probably the only moment I really ever have been. And between that heartbeat, which was kind of like the old person died, and the next heartbeat, a thought came into my mind that I know was from a power greater than me that those people in AA seemed to know what to do. And it wasn't like I went, you know, this abrupt turn. It was a one-degree change. Something shifted within me. And so that was, like I said, a Saturday. I got up Sunday. I was sober all day long. And now I have, I ramped my meetings up from one a month to, (laughs) to one a week. So I'm really going to a lot of meetings. It is when you're not, don't want to do anything, you know? So I go to my weekly meeting and the way I went to meetings is I walked in when you started, I left when you were over, and I got her done. Check off AA. Okay? I never complained you didn't talk to me. I didn't want you talking to me. I didn't make it possible to talk to me. We don't talk during the meetings. And, uh, you know, I was fine. I, I I was totally good with that. Well, so based on that, I, I, I decided to go early. I went 20 minutes early, and compared to what I was doing, that was like going the day before, you know? I was like, <laughs> who goes 20 minutes early? If you go 20 minutes early, you find out the old-timers go 20 minutes early so that goofy people like me can ask questions about how does this thing work. And that's what I did. Now, again, I don't ask you straight out, help me, but I asked a question which was very out of character. And I asked those people, what do you do to stay sober? And they knew the kid meant business. You know, they they knew there was a shift. They could see it and they could hear it. 
Now, as important as that question was, what was as important, if not more important, is how I listened to the answer then and now. And then and now, I have to listen to those answers of suggestions and guidance and so forth without conditions on them in my head, without the yeah buts, without the negotiations. Because, you see, I dumb everything down to the simplistic state of do nothing. And I have never changed or grown by dumbing it down to my level of willingness, which is zero. I have only changed and grown by stepping it up, getting out of that comfort, getting out of the stuff that isn't familiar to me, going into that new area. And so I had to listen to what their guidance was then and and still is today. So they set the path for me by sharing what they did. There was no you oughta, you gotta, you must, you have to. There was, well, this is what we did. Maybe you want to do it too. And for people like me, that uh, that's kind of an attraction. It, 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 there's no pressure, but it's attractive. There's no promotion to it. Um, and so, you know, my... Well, the very first thing they said was one day at a time, and I still believe this today, one day at a time, we're going to take the first drink. And in my case, any of those other things that affect you from the neck up, and we get a sobriety date. It's a great place to start, is physically sober so that the rest of this will begin to make sense. And so I thought, well, today's as good a day as any. I'm really all in. And that was on February the 8th, 1976, which means I just celebrated uh, last, uh, this few days ago, uh, 41 years of sobriety walking with you. Yeah. And uh, so, and I got sober young. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon to be 41 years sober and 39 years old, you know, so... Um, you know, that, that, that's how it's going to be in the next age. I swear we're going to drink in a past life and walk into a, a day one of birth, after birth. So, but I'm, uh, I got sober. I was chronologically 18 years old. And you see, the interesting thing about that particular Saturday that was my last relapse is that that afternoon... My age was a a factor, and that night it was irrelevant. The psychic change happened for me that I quit finding the differences, and it was interesting how I began to see those similarities. And, you know, I, I, I think it's important to talk a little bit about drinking in an AA meeting. Um, in my area, it doesn't seem to be necessary sometimes, or we talk about some other things, but I do think for for that, this is the only place for the alcoholic, and then I want to make sure that if you are an alcoholic here and wondering whether or not you belong, I hope that you find something here. Maybe it isn't anything that I'm going to say, but, you know, I, I looked at the wild and amazing stories, you know, these you know, just how do you possibly get from there to there? And there's so many of those. But I think I get to tell the story of the person who thinks they didn't do enough. 
They didn't drink long enough or hard enough or have enough trouble or enough jail time or, you know, ripping and roaring time. I'm, I'm for the one that's kind of that just garden variety drunk. Because I know that I, I enjoyed the wild stories and I compared my little old puny story to theirs and found, continued to keep myself aside. And I've heard some other people tell a story similar to mine, but I hope if nothing else, whether I'm the speaker or someone else's, I hope that you will look for the differences because in every single meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I can find, or I meant to say the similarities. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, uh, I, I can find those similarities. Because finding the differences is a no-brainer. That's easy. Look at your neighbor, you know. Look at the person sitting around you. You can find all the kinds of differences. But anyway, I took my first drink when I was 12 years old. I, I'd always wanted to be a Southern Belle, and God started me off in South Dakota. <laughs> you don't get to choose sometimes. And um, so I, I was raised up there by really nice people. They had one child. It was me. They're, they were kind and caring, and they were hardworking Midwestern, tax-paying, lawn-mowing, cookie-baking kind of people, you know? They have one child, it's me, and when I took my first drink at 12 years old, I would, I would just go off into an, I, I just found a world that I wanted to be in all the time. Now, my parents are not alcoholics, they're not problem drinkers at, by in, in any fashion of the word. Where my alcoholism came from, if it's hereditary, I haven't really a clue. I, it doesn't matter to me. I don't debate whether or not I was an alcoholic born that way. But I do know this, that when I took a drink, alcoholism was enacted. That I do know. I don't know that my behaviors prior to the first drink were anything unusual I'm selfish and self-centered, but when you're an only child, that's often kind of an inbred thing, I think, you know, because the world's all about you. And so I don't think that was anything strange. But I was attracted to this group of kids. And um, there was the academics, didn't belong there. There were the athletes, I definitely did not belong there. And then there was this group, they'd smoke cigarettes, drink beer, skip school, and I don't know why I was attracted to that group of people, I, I, for no known reason. And I got invited by them on a Monday night to go to the party on Friday. Well, like Bill, I had arrived, right? I had gotten invited to the cool kids' party, and I was plotting and planning, and I heard somewhere along the line about drinking, I never, don't recall the word drunk. I've never seen anybody drunk. I don't even know how you get there. I think you have to drink a whole bunch. But when I woke up Friday morning, there's two thoughts in my mind. One is the good thoughts that I'd woke up with all the time, which was, you know, be a good student, obey the rules, do the right thing, stay out of trouble. That That's my basic DNA of not then and now. But the second thought was, I'm going to get drunk tonight. And I don't know that those two things are going to come into direct conflict with each other. None whatsoever. And so we, like many of you, I remember my first night of drinking, many of the kids there, where it was, and so forth. And there was a, when you're 12 and 13 years old, it's like a liquid potluck. You know, whatever you stole from somewhere, 
it's thrown in there. It's God knows. I don't even know if God knows actually what's all in there, but so, but my first drink came out of a brown paper bag, which I just think is so fitting. I haven't a clue what the beverage was. I knew it was alcohol. That's all I cared. That was the qualifier. That's all it needed. So it's passing around, and these kids get to get to me. I take a big old pull off this bottle. I give it to the next guy, and I am so unprepared for what that's going to taste like. Oh, my God. It ripped out my throat, destroyed it, and stomped on it. You know, just, oh, my God. And I i mean, it could have been kerosene for all I know. It, it, I never asked. But there was this other thing that happened simultaneously, and that is there's this thought that comes up from behind my head that said, don't worry, you can always get another throat. Just go for it. Just go for this. Go, Keep going. And a few moments later, that whatever that was hit my gut for the first time. And while no party or rockets went off, my shoulders relaxed. And I got this warm glow two inches behind my belly button spot. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm 12 years old. You know, oatmeal has never done this for me, you know. <laughs> I do not know what's in there, but I want some more of it. And when it came back around... I did the same thing because I want more of that feeling. And I took a pull off that bottle, gave it to the next guy. And my throat's a little seasoned now, so it's not as so bad. And and when it went down the second time, if there is this, we talk about this invisible line that we cross from social to alcoholic drinking. Well, there is such a line. I, I just pole vaulted over that line between one and two because the second drink, moved me into a world that I wanted to be in all the time. This was like the sweet spot there. And it was like drink number one was, please accept me. Drink number two was, aren't you glad I'm here? You know, (laughs) how do you go from A to Z like that? Booze was the connecting factor. I got that, and I, but now I no longer needed your approval. You needed mine. And I love this world, and I liked being in it all by myself. Now, that night would, for me, place and put into, put into place a lot of, um, sim- uh, not symptoms, because there's really only two symptoms I understand, but a lot of, uh, things that I would do frequently. Now, that doesn't, they don't make me an alcoholic the patterns. Um, but what it does is it, I say it because it happened the first night. So it was just acceptable. There wasn't a progression. And then I, and then a little bit later, then I, what the very first night I would drink as much and as fast and whatever I could. And I would, uh, black out. And I didn't understand that for years, what that really was. I passed out. I came to with my first case of the dry heaves. I'd been taken home from the party, and I couldn't wait to go back. They didn't take me back, but I was starting to plan for tomorrow. And I activated those things, and so they, that was just part of what, what happened when I went drinking, and that was acceptable. When I took the first drink, what I did and did not realize is I activated what I understand to be our two primary symptoms of alcoholism. Number one, the mental obsession. 
I told you I was obsessed with drinking before I'd even had a drink. I was obsessed with getting drunk that night for the reason of being accepted by those kids. Now my reason is different because, like Dr. Silkworth says, I drink for the effect. I love the effect produced by alcohol. I wouldn't have known it in those words, but that describes it perfectly. So on Friday morning, good ideals in spot number one, get drunk in spot number two. On Saturday morning, those are in reverse. And I'm thinking about drinking and everything that goes along with it for the next several years. And those good ideals, well, they eventually, one by one, are off the list because you can't drink like that and maintain those ideals. So they go. That night I also activated the that obsession that or that that craving that phenomenon of craving the allergy i didn't know that i didn't know i don't have any allergy to anything else i did not know that once i took that first drink i did not have the ability to shut it off to stop drinking to me it was part of the excitement to never know where you were going to end up or how you were going to end up that looked like the excitement part of it and yet that was something completely out of my control. I always drank with an intention to get drunk. I, I never even lied to you and said, I'm only going to have a few, because I always knew it would be to be drunk. That night, I also closed the curtain of caring about anybody or anything, and then I just zipped it up. Emotionally, I just went void. And for the next several years, my attitude was, leave me alone. So what? Who cares? Yeah, yeah. It went, my, my change happened so suddenly. So at 12, I'm drinking at every opportunity I can. At 13, I'm introduced to the wonderful world of drugs, which really were just allowing me to drink longer, to delay the inevitable blackout. I found that when I drink that 13, I'm drinking whiskey out of a bottle with a beer chaser. And I find that I black out too quickly and I find things to help keep me alert. I found like things like speed and acid will do that. They'll help you. Yeah, they will. They'll get you there quicker and in color too, let me tell you. <laughs> I'm all about that. And um, that just pushed the pedal down. The only other thing I added when I was 16 was I started to have that morning drink. Just seemed like the natural progression of things. And at 17 and a half, uh, my father had tried all human power, the B of the ABCs of how it works, had tried all human power to relieve me of my alcoholism. I have my senior year of high school, and I'm trying to be all things to all people, and I'm expelled for the third and final time. And in 75, nice girls don't get kicked out of their small-town high schools for their drinking problems, generally. And that was my case, and my father sought professional advice. They knew what he was dealing with, and they recommended he commit me while he still had the legal custody to do so. And that's what he did. And in May of 1975, I was committed on a Friday night to uh, a treatment program in a little town called Grand Forks, North Dakota. And um, i it's kind of interesting. I had my first drink on a Friday, and I'm going to be introduced to you on a Friday. Lots of things happen, seem to happen to me on Fridays. But um, I'm introduced to you, and I ha I, we have no nothing in common. 
I mean, clearly, you've got the not drinking thing going on, and I'm not interested in that. You're nice people, but... And, of course, we would be educated and taken to outside meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I would sit in the farthest back corner of the room I possibly could while people were doing exactly what I'm doing here today, sharing my experience, strength, and hope. And my friend uh, Oren in our area says he would try to sit behind the paint. Oh, I totally get that spot. I know it. I know that spot. That's that's where I would go to. And I would find all the differences between me and you. But in my own small way, the problem was is I'm starting to identify. In a small, tiny, remote sort of way. I would hear you say things like, you lost your family because of drinking. And many do. And many, some come back, some don't. In my smart-alecky mind, it was like, you need a family? You can take mine. I don't, I don't need them anymore. They're always talking about my drinking. But in my real life, down where I really live, there, I had been necessary for me to leave their home because it was no longer a safe place for them. You talked about uh, drunk driving and totaling out cars and when I got my license, most of the time I drove under the influence. I didn't think anything odd about that. And when you talked about totaling out cars, I had never totaled out a car officially, okay? <laughs> um, I had a little drunk car that arrived. You know that when you buy them, they're rectangular, right? And in where I was living, there's lots of ditches and open fields and not many cars, but every now and then one would get in your way. Um, things get rounded out with the drunk bumps. The things are falling off. Uh, the driver's window had been shot out of it. And uh, my gas cap was a mitten I had stuck in there, okay? I'm like driving a Molotov cocktail around, basically, you know? But it never bothered me. It just, oh, well. Um, you talked about losing jobs. And, okay, I, I had a series of jobs because I was losing a series of jobs. And, yes, okay, maybe I'd been let go from a few and I would quit before. But the last year I got in a bad habit and, and I would quit in a blackout. Well, I don't know I've quit, so I go to work the next day, right? You know, it's like... <laughs> It's so awkward when you do that. It's just awkward. So these were the ways that I would justify why my case is different, but in my own small way beginning to identify. And, and then there were two things. You talked about all the broken promises. And I realized I hadn't been able to keep a promise since I was 12 years old and took my first drink because it all was involved not drinking. And I, I could go almost two weeks. I could go through one weekend, but I could never get past the second Friday. And it would be on again. And so when you talked about those cycles and the, you know, I just, I, I did relate to that. And then there was a woman who talked about trying to scrub away the smell. And I'm thinking, I've had this funny odor for about a year and I've tried to puff and powder and perfume it away, and, and, and I don't know why I can't. She said that was booze coming through her pores. 
And I knew that she knew what the smell smelled like. And I'll tell you, that's one of the things when you go on a 12-step call today, yes, they still do happen. If you put your name in our area with the central office, you will get 12-step calls, real ones. And uh, the last one I went on, I remember just kind of almost taking a big whiff, you know, glad it wasn't my fragrance that used booze fragrance. And that, but one day, if I don't stay grounded in the middle, who knows? There's no immunity here. There's no guarantee. There's a daily reprieve. And it's contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And uh, so I, I thought about that, and I thought to myself, you know, if I'm not careful, I might be one of those people. Well, I had my own plan of what this was going to look like in my life, and I was sent to Minneapolis to live in an all-women's halfway house. Not good if you don't like women. Um, <laughs> not excited. Not really caring about recovery or sobriety or a new way of life. I'm just looking to get under the radar of the watchful eyes. That's all I'm interested in. And then I'm going to go back and do my own thing, which is drink every day, but don't confuse that with what alcoholics do. You know. And I was sent to Minneapolis, and I'm, I, my first seven months I did the bare minimum, which was don't drink or do any of those other things and go to one AA meeting a month. So, okay, I'm not going to like go to two in a, in a month, you know, I'll just like join AA or something. I'll just do my one. And I told you how I did AA, walk in and leave when it's over. After seven months of simply being dry, no action. I got a big book somewhere. I don't need one of those sponsor people. I came to California to visit my mother who was living in San Jose at the time. And of course they encouraged me to get in touch with AA. I think I did. I, though, hang up with the first week with the people I used to drink with, and the last week and a half I'm drunk and loaded with them. No surprise, because I had no defense against the first drink. I made no effort. But what was a surprise was how the drinking was. Because that within, you know, I remembered it to be the party and the gaiety and the good time and the, the music and the lights and all that. And this was very dark. Within two drinks, I remember being in a blackout and the rest of that week and a half is a light, a face, you know, it's just, it's a blur. And on my flight home back to Minneapolis, I had an attitude adjustment of, uh, I better clean up my act, I better shape up. And all I did was change from one meeting a month to one a week. Now, that was progress, but it wasn't much. And so I went to those one meetings a week on a Sunday, and uh, on a Friday, five weeks later, I got a letter in the mail that had one joint in it. And I decided to keep it, because I thought, well, you just never know when you might need something like this, you know. I was so amazed I needed it the next day. It just, uh, <laughs> wow, the timing was perfect, right? Now, I'll tell you, the moment I opened that up and I saw what was in there, I started plotting and planning. And I'm not going to tell you about it because you might mess up my plan. And so I uh, made a decision on that Saturday. And the last thing that I ever had to this date was I smoked one joint. And you see, it, it's really embarrassing. It's so lame. It's so weak. 
And yet, it was the thing that kicked me off the fence of reservation as to whether or not I'm an alcoholic. I know it was one joint, but I call it my driest martini because I'm an alcoholic. It was just what was available to me. And that's why I've learned in many ways is that, you know, we, we, every family is up to them, but we choose not to have alcohol or anything else in our home because there's been many times in these 41 years where the thought flew by but had kind of a lingering effect. And I don't want it that convenient to my world. I don't want to just go from this room to the next room or the garage. I want to make it inconvenient so that if I get that insane of a thought that a drink is a good idea, that I have to make effort so God can come in, swoop in to that, stop that insane thought. So this is one of the reasons why I make some of the choices I do today, and that to me was the last thing that I've taken of my own hand to change the way that I feel and the way that I think. One counts. You see, I, was, I wasn't going to tell anybody. That's why I was just going to sneak this by. It was just going to be a lie, a little secret. But you see, I've learned that my sobriety date is based on abstinence, period. It's a, it's a white cloth with no smudges on it. You see, I, for me, that means no near beer, no near pot, um, <laughs> no liquid speed out there, no nothing. Because I'm, I told you before, I drink for a fact. And I know what the near sort of pseudo stuff is. So I, I will want the real. And I just, my sobriety date is such a precious gift. And I know people sober longer than me who tossed it away. And I don't want to be one of those. I have more responsibility. That's why I have to be busier than I ever was. Not busy cleaning out my sock drawer or something like that. Busy in usefulness. Busy in what God needs getting done if I can help him out. Well, that's how I got my sobriety date. Everybody gets one. You might not keep it, but everybody gets one at some point. It's the rest of the things they told me is how I've kept it. So they talked to me about meetings and home group. They said, we go to a lot of meetings, we get a home group. Now I do. I go to at least three meetings a week still. Um, I've lived in four different parts of the country, and therefore that's why I've had four different home groups. So far, that's the only reason I have changed home groups. It hasn't been I didn't want to change home groups, but I, it's the only reason so far. And what I realized when I moved up to Concord is I've also had four different last names. So just kind of how that worked out. Every city has a different last name when I was there. And um, a home group taught me about accountability and about responsibility and how to be one among many, because I'm great all by myself, but that's not the real world. And you taught me about how to place principles before personalities you know, I was, there was a time and place when I, um, you know, I was uh, 17 years sober and my husband at the time, we would end our marriage and it's kind of a little awkward sometimes when it's you and the brand ex, soon to be ex he and the brand new she are all sitting in the same room and, you know, that, that can get kind of small sometimes. But you know, nobody got custody of the home group. 
And we all had to learn how to be our primary purpose, which is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my guide was if I knew where they were or what they were doing, I'm not doing my job thoroughly enough, hard enough, focused enough, which was to work the room. Then and now, whether regardless of what was going on, but that my personal opinions about anything needed to be left in the car. And that I have one purpose, and that is as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous here in the rooms. And so that, I know what it's like to feel uncomfortable in those situations. But I also know home group, the history and being a part of that. I am invested, invested in my home group. It's a three-legacy group. What does that mean? It's involved with the steps of recovery, the traditions of unity. It's active in the service structure, our third legacy. It's very, very active. I need that kind of a home group. Talked about commitments in a home group. They, that's, that's a given to have a commitment. And even if they said to me, Oh, I'll fill up. I, well, I mean, not that they would ever say that, but if they ever did, I, I have a plan B. I'd be like, well, uh, then I'll be the parking lot greeter, you know, cause I need the commitment. I need to have a responsibility because I know my head. Well, I don't have a real reason and you will never hear from me. Let the newcomers have it. No, there's plenty of jobs to go around. If I have that attitude for me, I'll end up being a newcomer. So I need the investment of my time, money, and energy and in, in all ways in my home group. So my home group is the primary purpose group, uh, in Dublin, California. They talked about sponsorship. I, um, have had three sponsors. My current one, Millie G is, uh, she and I have been together for 30 years. And, uh, she just celebrated 95 years of age, 47 and a half years sober, still goes to five AA meetings a week with commitments. I know it. She's a rock star. I'm telling you, she's amazing. And that's, you know, if I, if I had one statement that describes the people that, who I've asked as my sponsor, it would be, that is what I want to be like when I grow up. And they wear the three legacies so beautifully. And that's who I have followed around and learned from. Now, sponsorship, the glow comes from passing it on. It can't just stay with me and I keep it. I have to pass that on somehow. And the women I work with are are required to do that. I will not sponsor takers. You have to be willing to pass this on and be in service. I'm not talking about sponsoring 100 people. I'm talking about willing to be in service in however way that is founded. But I know that glow comes from the giving, not from the taking, because I'm a taker. I I got entitlement down very good. But you said, no, no, that doesn't work here. That doesn't work here. That, That kind of stuff blocks me from that sunlight of the Spirit. I have to learn to be that giver a little bit at a time, wherever I can. They uh, talked to me about taking the steps. Now, in my first seven years, I did the best that I was able to do. I kind of, the sponsors I had from their, their experience wasn't sit down knee to knee, read the book paragraph by line by word. It was, here's the book read it, we'll talk about it, 
Doesn't mean it's right or wrong, just means what they were passing on, their experience. And so I feel like I kind of bumbled and fumbled and dumbled along the route of taking the steps. And yes, my life did change, and I got very active in Alcoholics Anonymous and service and things like that. And I was just shy of my fourth AA birthday when I moved to Atlanta. And I got a home group locked in, a sponsor locked in. I took a four-year birthday cake, and I know something now. My brain decided it knew something. I know how this is working now. I don't know what I knew, but I was quite convinced. And, and you know, in a new community, going to a meeting a day for a few early months is a great way to get to know your community. But my mind said, you know, seven meetings a week is a lot of meetings. And I've been hearing this word, balance bounced around. So I'm going to get me some of that. And I made the decision to down to two or three meetings a week, which quickly became two. Now, you don't have to be a mathematician to know that two meetings, two nights a week with you and five nights a week with me is a little imbalanced. Okay. (laughs) And it wasn't like I had anything else to do, like education or child care or elder care or anything. No, it was five nights with me. Over the next couple of years, I did not realize that I walked through the doors called complacency. And when you coast, you never coast uphill. And I'm coasting downhill, and I took a six-year birthday cake And I am so restless, irritable, and discontented. What I didn't know was I was so sick with untreated alcoholism that I thought I came up with the solution for my problem, and that was people, places, and things were going to make me happy. Now, the real wording, it's called men, money, and mansions are going to make me happy, okay? There we go. So I'm on a mission. And I meet a little fella, and he's got the qualifications I'm looking for. I know I'll fall in love with him, I'm sure, but he's got the qualifications <laughs> I'm looking for. He'd been sober 13 years, hadn't been to a meeting in three years, but no problem. I'm going to hip him. And over the next three months of this crazy, weird, I mean, this whirlwind romance of which I was the only one involved, um... This little fella, he, he just up and married somebody else. So I let him go. And <laughs> I doesn't take long, and up pops another little fellow. We do this dance of delusion for three months, and he will, rolls down the aisle with somebody else. And at 6.9 years of sobriety, physically sober but nuttier than that fruitcake, I come sliding in to Alcoholics Anonymous with a surrender again as deep as I could ever go. It's like in February 76, I surrendered to the substances, and in 6.9 years of sobriety, I surrendered to alcoholism and all the other things that it touches. And so when I took the steps again, I It was as if they were brand new. They'd never been written before in my world. And I took them with an eagerness and a a clarity that was wonderfully new. 
And it was as if I I was looking that way for step one. And by the time I got to the 12th step, I am in a new direction, a 180 turn. Now, step 12 to me doesn't say, now start over and do more analysis. It says, girl, you got your marching orders. Get out there and help someone else who doesn't know. Because every time I walk another woman through the steps, I am taking them again, but in a service type of way. I am growing and sharing my experience and looking anew at each of those steps. But for me to constantly do it for self, self, self is selfish. And I needed to know how to do that in service. And so they talked to me about taking the steps. Talked to me about the traditions. They said, now, you're a member of a group. You need to be an informed member of a group. So that means you need to learn about those traditions. While you're at it, why don't you learn how to put those in your personal life? Hmm. So after when, you know, time goes by and I begin to take those traditions into my personal relationships, girlfriends, fellow relationships, my work, my, you know, family, Because you see, always the mirror was in front of me. I was the only one I was seeing. And when I brought that mirror down, wow, there's people out there, right? And it's more than just about me. It's about that common welfare and a group conscience and singleness of purpose and respecting autonomy and respecting opinions and self-support and anonymity. Have a little humility. Don't have to be organized, but structure is helpful. I mean, I never knew how to put those into place. And that's what the traditions in a personal way began to do. They talked to me about uh, service. And service, they made very clear, was not, like I said earlier, it's not an option to have a commitment at your home group. That's a given. Service is the stuff that's inconvenient that you do outside of the home group. And, And that, you know, like this is a service. This is part of being of service. But there's also the stuff that people don't see. You know, am I as good and a trusted servant of what you don't see? How do I behave when nobody's watching kind of thing? You know, probably one of the things that is the best example that I like to share about on services when it's inconvenient and stuff is a couple years ago, I got asked to talk at a 6.30 a.m., Meeting. Now that may not be any big deal for you. That is a huge deal for me. I might as well stay up all night, you know. Um, you know, I, I don't, let's just say this. I don't wake up and look like this, okay? You have to be alert. You gotta be focused. You gotta be on your game putting the whole package together, right? And I'm thinking, Friday's kind of my little bit of sleep in day. And, and he, so I'm, I'm going, I say yes, but, from the minute I hang up the phone, I'm going back and forth, back and forth. Wish, I know I'm not going to get out of the commitment, but I'm thinking about how I can do it. You know, it's just one of those things. And finally, the day comes where the two voices say, okay, wait, let's just, let's just look at this. Let me explain, let me make sure I understand here. Okay. You're saying that someone has asked you to share your story, maybe give a little some hope to someone who might need it that you have no idea about, 
about Alcoholics Anonymous, your journey here at 6.30 a.m. on Friday, and it's inconvenient. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, fl- let's flip that coin over. What if somebody said to you that at 6.30 a.m. at that location is where the booze and the boys were going to be? Would that have been inconvenient? Oh, God, no. I'd have been there at 6 o'clock, right? Where? They're late. They're late, you know? And I don't know why, when I, that finally, like, came through, it was like, I never, ever recall a hesitation of how, you know, it's too late, it's too early. I never gave a fudge about anything regarding drinking and dying. I'm on it. I'm there. I'll be at the, I'll join. And here I'll get, well, gee, that's kind of early. Or that's, gee, that's a late meeting, blah, blah, blah. And I want to take the attitude over there and bring it over here. Now, I do the actions, but I want to do it without internal grumbling. That's my what I'm shooting for. And so it's that service beyond that will keep me current and present and conscious of this life. And the other thing they said was carry the message. 41 years, lots of things have happened. No really traumatizing, earth-shattering, life-changing, because the longer I'm here, it isn't that huge swing up and down. Because I really do, every morning, I say my prayers And step three, and I say step seven, and I have some time with God, and I have some things I enjoy reading that gets me set for the day. Every night I close out my day thanking him, and in the morning I do ask, please help me stay sober today. Today is 14,981 day at a times. And I count my days because I like to remember that I'm starting today off physically sober. But what I do through this day will help me stay that way. And I know that it's beyond a power greater than me. And I ask that power every morning to help me stay sober. Because I'll tell you what, every relapser I have ever talked to in 41 years, I've asked the same question, and I've had the same answer. The question is, just curious, when you took that drink that day, did you ask God to help you stay sober? And in 41 years, the answer is still the same. No. It's my reminder to never take this for granted. Because I'll tell you what, at 26 years of sobriety, I'm, I've met Kent. We've been married a year now. And, uh, we're back in Atlanta at, uh, my old home group and, and we were there on Friday night with the old home group. Saturday, get up, we're excited. We're going to go and meet another group of friends. Um, that are a mixed group of friends. These aren't just AA people. They were a mixed group of friends. And when we sat down for lunch, there was pre-poured wine on the table. Now, I'm 26. I've been in the middle of you for a couple of decades, right smack dab. And this kind of threw me off a little bit. I mean, I've been around alcohol. I know how to say no. I don't need to recite Chapter 5 to him or anything to justify it. I know how to turn glasses over, blah, blah. And, but pre-poured was just kind of threw me off. 
And uh, hmm. so I confirmed that that was the beverage, and I just moved it out of my way. It was just kind of my knee-jerk reaction to it. And uh, it, 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 it just sort of had this way of getting into my world. And we leave there, and I was treating it kind of like a, um, you know, those drunk nightmares we get. Just it, it'd just go away, kind of like a fog will lift. And uh, after a couple of days, it still hasn't done that. It's just kind of circling in my head, just wanting to shake it off. And this thing would last for six months. This was like, the only thing I can identify it, it wasn't a mental obsession. It was like this chemical imbalance, this craving for drunkenness. And I'd never heard anybody talk about this sort of thing, and I, d- I don't even know how to give it words, and I don't even know how to describe it. But it's really scaring me. I'm in the middle of you, have been for a long time. And the more this goes on, I'm thinking, you know, just just tell me what to do. I mean, how could this get in? I have worked so hard to protect my recovery. How could this get in? How'd this sneak in? And there wasn't any do this and it will go away. So I started to look at, okay, what have I seen historically take people out? Generally, it's something that happens long before they pick up the physical drink. They picked it up in a different way. A resentment, got a new family, new job, new all the new stuff comes, and now I don't have time for AA. The life AA gave you got in the way. And um, so I've got, are you doing anything? Are you lying, stealing, cheating, keeping secrets, doing inappropriate behavior? No. Are you active with sponsor and sponsees and home group and God? Yes, absolutely. And there wasn't any something I could change or shift. And for oddly enough, during that six-month period of time, I was on a lot of wet, drunk 12-step calls. And it was like I could see they so wanted to be sober but just couldn't seem to. And I just, it was just a, the scariest time of my whole sobriety. And finally one day I'm at a meeting one morning and I'm leaving the meeting. I felt fine, but I'm on my way home and I am gripped with the terror that I would drink against my will. Kind of go into one of those Stepford wife brownouts or something, you know, and just kind of end up drunk. And I called my sponsor, one of the, Many good reasons to have a sponsor. It wasn't like she, you know, was a stranger or I was a stranger to her. And I dialed my sponsor longhand. I don't speed dial her. I don't voice dial her. I need to dial her longhand. It's much more of a connection for me, and I want her number emblazoned in my brain. And she, God knew I needed her more than anybody else on the planet that day. And I told her what was happening, and I was so afraid that I was crying. And she said something that was not new, but it was perfect. And she simply said, honey, what we have is alcoholism, not alcoholism. 
And it wasn't that I had forgotten that or forgotten I am an alcoholic, but what it did is it made my whole being a little bit different. It brought into line step 10, the daily reprieve, not a weekly or a monthly or an every AA birthday reprieve. It's a daily reprieve. And it is contingent on maintaining and actively connecting to that spiritual condition. And the other thing that came into my mind was, in chapter 3 it talks about that we, we're in the, in paraphrasing, we're in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable time, it gets worse, never better. And that absolutely applies to me. Just because I quit drinking doesn't mean alcoholism went, died. Not at all. It just waits. It just waits for me to get weakened, to get distracted with the other shining objects. It just waits very patiently, cunning, baffling, powerful, and I like to think patient. Because I'll tell you what happens is there's that sleeping tiger in there, and it stays asleep as long until I start, you know, that whole coasting downhill. If I'm in the grip of progressive you know, disease, then I better be in the grips and action of a progressive recovery. Because the two can't meet up. This has to be going on. This has to be active. And that's a day at a time. I don't run a marathon every day. I do this day. This is the day that counts. This is the day that I get to share my experience, strength, and hope with you. And that this is the day that when I go to bed tonight, I'm going to say, I'm so glad that I've been here with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.